Welcome to episode 184 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking to Bill Whitelaw, who's the Managing Director of Strategy and Business Development at Geologic Systems. But where I know him most from is his uh, what he, long tenure as a publisher of JW and Energy, uh, which is publishes the Oil Bulletin and, and other oil and gas in, uh, related publications in Calgary. And, but he's also the author of the Troy Media op-ed, Canadian Oil and Gas Sector Misunderstands the Power of Narratives. And of course, we've published that on our website, energy.media, under opinions, and you can go and read it there. I'd encourage you to, actually. But regular listeners to this podcast and followers of my journalism will know I spend a lot of time talking about narratives, and in particular, uh, oil and gas narrative. So I'm very interested to have my chat with White uh, with Bill. So Bill, welcome to the interview. Well, thank you, Markham. And it's good to be here. Uh, a fellow traveler in the, uh, and I hope uh, as part of our conversation, we get to talk about the importance uh, that journalism plays in shaping the way we talk about climate, uh, the way we think about climate and the way we, we sort of challenge uh, some of those uh, things out there that would have us uh, squelch the voice of what good solid journalism is about in this important space. So, Well, on that note, we will have much to talk about. So I want to kind of go through your op-ed, uh, the way you wrote it, because I think that you've laid out a, an argument here. Uh, one that I'm going to challenge a little bit. So we're going to, like I say, we're going to have a spirited uh, conversation, but we're also going to have a very civilized evidence-based conversation because this is the thing. A lot of the conversation around oil and gas uh, is not civilized. It's not evidence-based. It's not even respectful and polite. And I'll give you an example. You know, I'm have, I've got this guy on, on LinkedIn right now who is messaging me and he's ranting about my, you know, why do I hate Alberta so much? Well, I don't hate Alberta so much. I love Alberta. So I lived there. I worked in the oil and gas industry for five years. I've reported on it for years and years. And I want to see nothing more than Alberta be prosperous, and I'm not anti-oil and gas. I want to see Alberta oil and gas adapt to the realities of not only the climate crisis, but also the global energy transition, which is, is going to be a, an existential threat to the Alberta oil and gas industry. But, but not agreeing with the dominant narrative automatically gets you those kinds of accusations that I hate Alberta. I hate oil and gas. I'm, you know, I'm a, a, as Brett Wilson accused me being paid by the federal liberals at one point yeah. on Twitter. I mean, this is, this is not the kind of, this is the kind of conversation that you and I are going to have is the kind of conversation that we need to have all the time in Alberta and it's not happening. And, and admittedly it's not happening outside of Alberta either. So, that being said, you know, maybe let's start with you giving us kind of just a, an overview of your argument. Well, yeah, and, and maybe the best place to start is, so like you, I do uh, independent journalism outside of my employment with Geologic. And Geologic Systems is a software company. It's a data company. It's a global energy intelligence company with a media dimension through the Daily Oil Bulletin, which has been around for close to 90 years uh, as a platform for you know, news, analysis, commentary, and that sort of thing. But what I decided to do, like you, is set myself up. So I have my own Substack world, uh, and my 
uh, my world is next-gen ESL, energy as a second language. And I'm using the argument around the idea that we need to talk differently about the way we think about oil and gas evolution, the future of oil and gas. And, and you know, so this is attracting a lot of attention because it makes the point that we use two different forms of languages when we talk. The industry talks a lot to itself and that never achieves escape velocity out of downtown Calgary's, uh, you know, sort of micro echo chamber. And, you know, in the other day I started going back and forth and I, I picked up a, a conversation I'd been having with Dr. Roger Pilkey Jr. Uh, and Roger, is as many of you may on the listeners may know is the is the scholar from the University of Colorado who sort of advanced the notion of onage brokerage about the relationship science has to policy and politics and I'm trying to entice Roger North uh, for what I'm calling the climate sense and sensibility tour and to come up and to help our industry start to understand you know from a narrative point of view that there are different ways and means of thinking through what a narrative is and what it isn't. And the point in my article that you're referencing, Markham, was I was you know, making the point to the industry is we're so busy, aspects of our industry are so busy uh, trying to figure out how to change the, what they perceive to be the counter narrative. They're not, they're not creating their own positive narratives in terms of, and so, you know, if I'm a member of the public and I want to make up my mind, I want to have two great narrative choices to critically think about, uh, you know, what is the Pembina Institute saying about the Pathways Alliance and its its emissions aspirations? And I want the industry to be able to create a narrative that said, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to do these things and it's not perfect and we need clarity on policy and, and uh, the regulatory environment, that sort of thing. But the point of my article was, is there's too much anger in what seems to be the dominant narrative in what I call the Spamasaurus world in another article, which is the stale, pale, aging or angry male dinosaur, where it's, you know, it, you know, as I was being a little bit infantile when I said everybody hates me, nobody loves me. Yes. And so so I think, you know, where we go in this conversation will be about how narratives can complement each other instead of combat each other. OK, uh, fair enough. Art. Fair enough. Um, so let's start off on one of the points you made. Um, what the oil and gas industry does about how we speak energy, as you say, mm -hmm. and he, I'm going to quote from your from your op-ed. So much of we do gets lost in translation because we don't understand what narratives are and how they're created and sustained. Now, see, I would I would advance the counter argument that in fact the Canadian the Alberta based oil and gas industry is one of the great narrative machines in the history of narrative. It 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 cre has been creating uh, narratives for decades. It very it employs uh, spends tens of millions of dollars every year on things like the Alberta now the Alberta Energy War Room. Now the industry doesn't do that; the government does that. But nevertheless, it it spends a lot of money in other places. Like you know, CAP spends money on the Canadian the uh, Energy Citizens Initiative, which is a narrative management kind of approach, and it's very very good at strategizing and and creating narratives that become. Uh, uh, memes out in not only industry, but also in particularly in Alberta and Saskatchewan's political culture to a lesser extent in the Canadian culture. But nevertheless, it is, I, I've said this for a long time, in fact, that the Canadian uh, the, uh, oil and gas industry is 
brilliant at managing narrative. It knows exactly what a narrative is. It knows exactly how to construct a narrative. It knows how to promote a narrative. And there's an, a, there's a political ecosystem, uh, part of which is not controlled by the oil and gas industry. And I'm thinking about AstroTurf organizations, uh, Canada Action, and, and, and ones like that pop up all over the place to support those, those narratives. So they, they may be the angry male guy narrative, but nevertheless, they're narratives and, and they've, they've come to define uh, the oil and gas narratives, I think. So uh, your response. Yeah, I agree 125, 145, 225% with exactly what you just said, but I would, I would sort of ask us both to reflect, uh, Mark, come on, then what exactly is a narrative? You know, and the point, you know, without getting too literary on it, and, you know, is that the, the idea of a narrative for me is the Cold War is a narrative. The Industrial Revolution is a narrative. It's the things that endure and uh, they transcend time. And to me, it's only a narrative when other people give it license to be a narrative. And the problem with the oil and gas industry's machine, it's churned out self-fulfilling tropes around uh, what it wants the public to believe. But CAP's Energy Citizens Program was an abysmal failure, right? Uh, in, in terms of capturing the broader Canadian imagination. And, and to me, if you don't achieve escape velocity from your own self-interest, you're not in the business of creating narratives that endure. And that's my point, right? And you're absolutely right. The machine is phenomenal about it. I was saying to somebody the other day, the whole Canadian, you know, energy center um, dynamic, it reminds you it's state-sponsored media. I'm old enough to remember back in the Cold War days where uh, in Russia, if you lived, you had two main sources of news, Pravda and Izvestia. And one means truth <laughs> and one means news. And as Russians would say, there's no truth in the news and no news in the truth. And the the idea is that was, you know, to your point, that was about trying to control a population away from the free thinking of what, what narrative should actually be. They should capture the imagination. And so you know, you're absolutely right about the narrative machine, but there is a subset of the narrative machine that is also trying to say, we need to change their narratives. And we need to respect the fact that the anti-oil and gas movement has a narrative and there's legitimacy in the things that it's trying to say. And so my argument in the piece was to say, let's, you know, let's focus on um, our, a different form of narrative creation because all the things that you've described so eloquently just a few moments ago really are about pointing to, uh, you know, the corporate balance sheet and its impact on the Canadian economy versus the social balance sheet and its impact on the Canadian economy. And I think that's where oil and gas has to go is into that realm. And I, you know, I chair, I'm an advisor to the Energy, Energy Futures Lab. I work within the CRIN Clean Resource Innovation Network ecosystem on the Digital Theme Committee. I chair the Canadian Society for All Evolving Energy. And where my frustration on this comes from is I see so many elements of positive things that Canadians, I think, as a journalist, Canadians, I think they would like to know and say, maybe that might change my perspective on things. And that's what I was trying to get at in the piece, right? And, and so you're absolutely right. And, and I was really trying to help the industry understand Self-talk and narratives are two different things, right? Because it yeah. doesn't, it, it you know, it, and, and, and again, as I made the point to give me license for challenging conversations like this was, if you ask 10 uh, English professors what a narrative is, you'll get 10 different answers specific to the contexts in which you ask the questions, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. And and fair enough. And uh, I want to talk about the anti-oil and gas narratives because this came up uh, for non-Alberta audiences. There's been a long debate, a long battle with environmental groups uh, over what was called the tar sands campaign. And there was a, a Vancouver blogger, Vivian Krauss, who wrote many, many pieces and became very popular in Alberta because what she said was that there were, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. At one point she said over a billion dollars of American foundation money flowing into Canada to support environmental groups that were promoting anti-oil and gas uh, narratives and misinformation and propaganda, in particular the tar sands campaign. And so when Jason Kenney and the UCP came to power in 2019, they actually called a, a, a commission, a, a public inquiry that chaired by uh, Calgary Forensic Auditor Steve Allen into this. With And it it. It was, you know, I had written about this. I, I, I wrote the first big piece about Vivian's uh, work and how flawed it was and how uh, mistaken it was. But the point was, the premier was behind it. The cabinet was behind it. Oil and gas uh, uh, executives were behind it. And and everybody was saying, you know, this is horrible. They shouldn't do it. And, and it turned out to be, you know, a tempest in a teapot. That when Allen's report came out last year, it was like 45 million, 35 to 50 million dollars over 10 years, and nothing really changed. And it turned out that they were, as you know, he had to conclude that they were motivated by uh, legitimate concerns over climate and so on. And and that's kind of my point is is had there been an and and Bill, there was a, a legitimate attempt by the industry to engage with environmental groups. From 2014 to 2015, as I've reported, when the five CEOs, oil sand CEOs, met with the five executive directors of Engos and it came to a deal in 2015, there was a positive attempt to manage narrative and, and come to an understanding. And then that kind of got overwhelmed. It got overwhelmed and the politics of, of uh, the negative politics, the populist politics, the politics of victimhood just completely overwhelmed that and then we find yep. we wound up with this public inquiry that turned out to be a farce so i don't know what that does to your you know narrative narrative but yeah. i thought i'd throw that in there well no no and, and that's very well put and i could give you many inside baseball stories about steve's commission where they realized what a fool's errand they were on uh because all of that i could have told steve and i could have told the government all the money that was tracking in because it's been tracking into industries it tracks into anti-agri-food industry it tracks into anti-oil and gas it tracks into uh, big anti-big pharma industries there's nothing new in it but uh, there was a period marking for of about a year and a half that if i got one more uh, invite to a vivian kraus tinfoil hat <laughs> uh, uh session you know, and I, I would go with them just to start to debunk some of the things she said. At the, the people would listen to me at the tables. And I said, she's not wrong, but she's not right either. This is not news. But my point that I was making in the context of what you've just said in terms of narrative building is it, in, for parts of this industry, what we seek is these, these external validators of our own angst, right? Alex Epstein is, is a great example of that. Uh, Michael Schellenberger is a great example of that. Um, 
um, you know, I spent some time earlier this year with Bjorn Lomborg, uh, you know, the great, uh, the great Danish scholar, uh, you know, in terms of the skeptical environmentalist. And I could tell he was actually kind of puzzled about why he'd been invited to Calgary, uh, you know, but he had been perceived as uh, somebody who will validate the industry's argument against all that anti-oil rhetoric that's out there. Now, there's an important thing here that even in this conversation, you and I tend to do what everybody does is we default to calling it oil and gas. Um, and it's, it's sort of one giant monolithic entity, and it is. But when you get inside it, as you know, you've worked there, is, you know, there's, our, there's all kinds of narrative tensions in the industry. The Pathways Alliance is one narrative machine that is completely different from the Montney natural gas narrative machine on how much low carbon LNG we can ship off the West Coast. And that internal conflict in the industry stops us from cohering around some larger, more integrated narratives. And so then all of a sudden things like CRIN and uh, Energy Futures Lab and Avatar Innovation become the pack horses of those aspirations, you know, in terms of telling the stories through people and that sort of thing. But there's this entire Montney versus McMurray formation as a sort of thing that goes on that is internal narratives rubbing against each other that create friction uh, that uh, anti-oil and gas narrative promoters um, uh, tend to use as, a, you know, in terms of wedge narratives, right? They, they understand that, that. Uh, point, but to your point is that you know, and we have some really positive things to tell that just get lost in the shuffle of the angry things we have to say, and that's my piece was is intended to sort of start, start taking apart some of that anger because this is the other point that I wanted to make, and it's coming up in another piece I'm writing is that anger is dissuading the entire next generation of young men and women from coming into this sector. And when we think about the role oil and gas has to play in a transitioning system of systems, because that's the only way it's going to work, uh, it is the most exciting time to be in the energy world. And yet that very anger around some of those, those narratives is, you know, with all these young people that I uh, have the privilege of engaging with, Markham, is it's a dissuasion <laughs> to come into the sector. You mean I have to be like that? You know, and and I, I try to do my best to say, no, no, it's, it's, times are changing. There's a real generational thing at work, as you well know here. So, yes, I, I agree, and and one of the reasons, one of the examples to illustrate that point, is the University of Calgary disbanding its petroleum engineering uh, uh, program because nobody, no students didn't want to go into it. They didn't want to go into the industry. Uh, so, but I want to I want to talk about narrative here because right now we've we've kind of got a dichotomy here. We've got the the oil and gas narratives versus the anti-oil and gas narratives. And I have for, for many years now been writing about and talking about a different narrative. And the narrative goes like this. The global energy transition didn't get started yesterday. It, it has very deep roots back to the 70s for solar panels, 80s for wind turbines, 90s for lithium ion batteries and first EV prototypes. What we're seeing now is the those technologies and many, many other sort of we'll call them minor you know uh uh clean energy technologies are now way down uh the uh the bottom of the s curve they're coming some of them are, have reached the inflection point and now are on the hockey stick growth things like wind and solar and evs and and batteries and then there's all, all kinds of other stuff so what 
some of the, I mean, a number of agencies like the International Energy Agency and BP and Rystead and so on, we're very respected, have modeled out and they said, by 2030, we're going to see peak oil demand. Then we'll see a plateau. Then we'll see demand destruction, and and we'll and we're then we'll be on the decline curve. And so I've been arguing for some time that this, in fact, is an existential threat to to Alberta oil and gas. I mean, this is essentially the rise of a competitor in the form of electricity, and to a lesser extent, low emission fuels like hydrogen, and and oil. For it's never had a competitor. 125 years, petroleum has never had a competitor. Has one now. And so what that means is that economies like Alberta, oil and gas sectors like Alberta, have a window in which to adapt. And I don't mean just uh, I don't mean just decarbonizing, lowering their emissions intensity of their barrels, right. getting down to net zero. They have to adapt in many other ways. And, and what I've written about and I propose as an idea is that Alberta is already a leader in advanced material manufacturing using feeds, hydrocarbon feedstocks. So turning the we will soon have a uh, be able to turn bitumen into pri- uh, carbon fiber precursor, which then you can build carbon fiber manufacturing plants. We have a CO2 research institute over at, by Shepherd uh, uh, Energy Plant in, in Southeast Calgary. And so turning CO2 into materials and cement and all sorts of other things. We have, a, we have a, a world leaders in that. And what we ought to do is we ought to start now pouring many, many more dollars into that. We should commercialize these, these things and then scale them up and basically create non-combustion domestic markets in Alberta so that they start small. But over time, as eventually the fuels markets that we serve now begin to decline, these other markets can be scaled up. And essentially, you could imagine a world, a scenario in which uh, the production in Alberta, particularly in the oil sands, would actually remain the same or grow. But instead of selling it down to U.S. refineries or selling it, you know, well, maybe the U.S., you would you would actually keep that that feedstock in Alberta to, to be processed in Alberta, create value-added products in Alberta and create a whole lot more wealth and jobs and so on than has previously been the case. So that's another narrative. And that's a, that's a narrative, a third narrative in the context of our conversation that gets me labeled as, a, as an enemy of Alberta and an enemy of oil and gas. And this is part, this is one of the things that frustrates me is that the narrowness of the oil and gas boosters, and I know you would probably agree that that has to change, but this is an example of other narratives that are not anti-oil and gas, but not status quo either, that need to be integrated into the conversation. So there's a a bunch there to unpack. And I would, uh, I would say, I would start with saying, keep it up. I'm a tremendous admirer of your resilience and tenacity because your narrative constructs are what I call synthesizing narratives. Are the, this is when I talk to people about how a system of systems will work. Uh, for example, I'm a director on a private company. We're working with the Bitumen Beyond Combustion Program to put carbon fibers into our urea coatings for pipeline integrity and safety. Ooh, so there's a classic how example. Interesting. Yeah, how interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the other day I was on a long call with Pat Carlson, who's the CEO of Coitno sure. Energy. And what are we talking about? We're talking about their three solar farms. 
including their a sustainable agrivoltaic solar farm in central Alberta, where 3,500 acres of solar panels put to the perpendicular to the ground will still allow that farmer to crop and forage between the solar panels. And that is a whole decarbonization of the grid play. Uh, you know, and you and I know all of these pores in the great reservoir of our industry. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of permeability. And I could tell you in my life, if I write something that's perceived as negative, I can walk into the petroleum club and people will uh, avert their eyes from me in the <laughs> lunchroom. And it, within an hour, if I'm having a coffee two blocks away in the energy transition center, it's all they can do to stop me from getting on their shoulders and parading me around just like you as the voice of reason and sanity and how the actual industry will actually evolve and survive. And I take a great deal of heart in that because those cheering moments for all of the wonderful arguments you've just said, um, you know, I was at uh, the Emissions Reduction Alberta uh, Industry Transformation Awards announcements where $60 million of money out of the tier program were. And, you know, all of a sudden I realized, gee, large emitters are helping fund these regenerative agriculture. And I come from the view, of course, ag and energy are the same bedfellows from an, a food and security of energy supply. Uh, security of supply, you know, all this stuff. But I think the challenge that people like you and I and other journalists face is, is keeping at it long enough that these other elements uh, of the energy ecosystem as they mature and the economics become sounder and the supply chains that serve them become sounder, then all of a sudden, you know, we're going to look like latter day heroes and not Don Quixote's, you know, tilting at windmills. And, you know, I will say this, I've been around in this industry now 25 years, is that the narrowness of that angry voice narrows every day and the breadth of the let's get on with it as Markham would have us do widen every day. And I will tell you, yes, the Bachelor of Petroleum Engineering program may be gone, but next week I'm sitting in a review of the new undergraduate uh, earth sciences degree, uh, which is all about fusing the, the underlying skills of uh, that have gotten this industry where it is on the subsurface with fusing those skills with understanding what sustainable finance and indigenous partnerships are all about. And that's the other thing, you know, that, you know, you know, we all need to work on you and I and other commentators in this space is articulating the critically important role of indigenous communities in all of this, because A, they represent the single largest cohort of, of employees across the spectrum of how we employ people. But there is, as the more I've dug into this, and you'll see some work I'm doing uh, in a bit on this, is there's a whole lot in there in the indigenous science space that can be really magical in all of this stuff in terms of how we uh, we convince the broader population because it it you know fundamentally everything you said about Alberta is true and if you could take that story to Toronto you wouldn't be ashamed to say I work in oil and gas boy do I have a story to tell you or to Vancouver or you know to Halifax right and because that's the other mythology out there and you can't talk about narratives without talking about mythologies is, you know, my brother-in-law in Sarnia hates me because I work in oil. No, he doesn't. He just wants to hear a different story. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that, that's fair enough. And, and I'm going to be, I'm going to actually uh, uh, throw a bone to my critics uh, because there are different ways of approaching this, the, the basic, uh, the fundamental narratives that you and I agree on, you and I approach them very differently. Like within your, a lot of the work that you've just described is uh, you're working within the existing structures 
you're seeking out uh, like-minded individuals, you know, like Energy Futures Lab and the Transition Center and, and Avatar and all of these things, the, these organizations that are doing really great work. Uh, their voices may not be as loud yet as the as the dominant industry voices, but nevertheless, they're important voices, and that's where you've chosen to work. And I've chosen a different path. I, I've chosen to be the critic inside the inside the tent, and even though I'm perceived to be outside the tent almost all the time, nevertheless, I see myself inside the tent. But the guy that has to point out the hard truths that others maybe won't. And so, for instance. You know, we just published part two of our unethical oil series about conventional oil and gas through the eyes of the of the regulator. And the things that I learned uh, in the course of, of interviewing over 50 experts and, and reviewing historical documents and, and current energy, uh, Alberta energy regulator documents would would curl your toes. I mean, the, the this nonsense. Well, Danielle Smith wrote in a mandate letter that, you know, just a few days ago, that Alberta is the most responsible producer of energy on in on the earth, which is not true. I mean, it's just not true. And I, I've taken it upon myself to, you know, basically puncture those those myths, which makes going to make me unpopular. I get that. And that's where some of the backlash against my work uh, comes from, from the, the folks who like the dominant energy, you know, oil and gas narratives. So I appreciate what you're doing. It is I've ta- I've chosen a different path, and I guess I'm going to get a, di- a bit of blowback because of that. But I, I think you know if you took your last ten pieces or your last uh, ten uh, podcasts, and you uh, took my last ten pieces, Substack and my Troy Media stuff, or the stuff I do for our own internal uh, publications. And you laid them sound and and the readers would ultimately say, well, Bill and Markham, yes, they're coming at it from different positions on the spectrum or the energy scape, but fundamentally their drill, their 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 aspirations are the same, right? And you know, I, I try to think of myself as a bit of a Trojan horse of trying to find within the industry those voices that need validation by what good journalism represents and giving them the freedom, like the Energy Futures Lab, to be brave enough to to counter from within. That's a whole different dynamic because what I don't have that you have is that broader audience external to the industries saying, yes, Markham, that's what we need to hear and we need to know about, you know, the way, because what your, your journalism reviews is that the ugly side of that, we're the self-aggrandizing, we're the best in the world. We're not the best in the world. We may be among the top 20 in the world, but we're nowhere near the best. And there shouldn't be anybody who can lay claim to the best because this stuff, you know, good regulation, good policy is always a, a work in motion, but anyway. Right, and the point that's often lost uh, when I when I write the critical pieces uh, is the fact that it's not, I'm not doing it uh, in order to provide fodder for those who want to shut down the industry, but to fix the problems within the industry so that if it, if it can transition to this other, you know, uh, model, this other, uh, it can restructure itself and reform itself so that it can be competitive in a post-combustion world, a low-carbon world, it has to fix some of these problems. 
It has Absolutely. to fix the orphan well problem. It has to fix the tailings bond problem. It has to fix all of these problems in order to be sustainable into the 21st century. In fact, I wrote a piece last year, the Public Policy Forum, which, as you know, is a kind of a think tank for big yes. corporate interests for the most part. And it wrote it wrote a blueprint for the Canadian oil and gas industry. And basically what it said is, you know, what we should do is government should should subsidize oil and gas, particularly the oil sands and, and carbon capture and storage. And we're going to decarbonize them. And then we'll just see how the markets go and we'll let them ride the market down. And, you know, when they fail, they fail. And that's just the way it should go. And I think what an anti oil and gas argument. In fact, what we should be doing, because Albertans, after all, under the Constitution, own the oil and gas resource, right? Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. So, so they have a, they have a vested interest in in making the getting the best value and having that value continue into the twenty second century. So if you could say, if you can in, envision a scenario, a world, a model, a, a system that that fixes the problems with emissions, fixes the problems with sustainability, finds new markets, and and gives the industry a, a pathway to being profitable and into the 22nd century, I don't know what could be more pro-Alberta oil and gas than that, right? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, the other thing that, despite the, the, the different sort of points on the landscape we come at this from, you and I are, are both experienced enough and I think astute enough to understand there's no moving. Like when we talk about polarization, we don't, we need to respect the fact that the, the poles are spectrums themselves, right? And if you're at the ultimate end of one, you, you, they're not going to, you know, you and I work both to sort of bring the conversation into really what now could be called the complacent middle or the unaware middle or however that wants to be described, right? Because to your point is I say to my kids who are all young adults, look at you own the data, you own those mineral rights to, to your point, Mark, and that gives you a certain accountability. I've sent three kids to university uh, at pretty reasonable cost because my oil and gas molecules have been working for me as a citizen, but that confers on citizens an obligation to sort of listen to the debate, take a position in the debate, listen to what Markham and Bill and others have to say, and then say, okay, I'm going to stake my, you know, we need to also encourage because the industry will only start to respond when there's sufficient critical thinking coming from what they perceive to be the public, not energy citizens, CAPS energy citizen program. But by then we'll see our politicians sort of auguring to that point of where, because Dan, you know, Danielle Smith right now will will pat herself on the back with that self-aggrandizing best in the world because she feels that it meets what a political constituency. I can tell you, there's a lot of young people I talk to think, man, I wish she'd talk about it in a different way. And, right. you know, but that's the politics of the thing. But I'm, I'm trying to advance uh, and I'll share it with you, and, is, and you've summed it up very well, and I'm trying to say in Canada and in Western the world, as we sort of figure out this, what are our, in air quotes, conditions of combustion? And how do we think about the way we move forward as a petroleum sector um, and understand that there's all kinds of potential in a post-combustion world. You've said that very well earlier on. You make those arguments very well all the time. And, and whether it's materials management and all of these arguments around the role that plastics play in our lives, you know, this is, we're unlocking very cool technologies and very cool um, uh, processes and the government's investing all the time in things that will get us to the point where 
we're going to produce these hydrocarbons. We're doing it with drilling rigs powered by, you know, um, natural gas from the hole. The emissions are coming down all the time. But again, we have to move past our, uh, our, our it, with some constituencies in the industry to say that, because the other thing we do is we hold Canadians economic hostage to the existence of the oil and gas industry. And that people just, that's one thing that's so putting off. And I said to somebody the other day, I said, you know, like we, we, we've never understood the John Rockefeller robber baron phenomena, right. In terms of, uh, you know, how people perceive the industry as, uh, you know, a bunch of fat cat robber barons sitting on piles of cash all the time. That's in many cases, far, far from the truth, but this, the, the idea Markham of, conditions of combustion conversation and narrative that sort of puts all the tech, all the potential for evolution of this industry, where companies like Coitno and Futura and Advantage, all these companies that are making these phenomenal steps forward into grid decarbonization, low emissions production, we're, you know, that's what journalism is about creating, helping those companies create the critical mass that moves that forward. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, the kind of work that needs to be done and that we're trying to do here at, at Energy Media is, is to provide the information to our audience so that they can understand what's the processes that are going on and the some of the changes that need to be made. Because some of these are political changes, some of them are policy changes. They're they're within their realm in their very tiny way that the individual can can influence how they vote or how they, the things they support and their behavior. And, and also I think we, I would like to think that at some point energy media uh, might have some impact on decision makers on the political and business elites in, in Alberta, because I, I would argue, and uh, you know, many of these folks. So I would be very interested to see what you, what you think of this, but I would argue that the those folks uh, don't understand as well as they ought to the global forces at work. And the, here's the, the reason I, I make this argument, Bill. And I, we started doing Zoom interviews four years ago, four, four years ago, August 2019. Then along came the, uh, the pandemic and everybody was at home. And what I quickly discovered is that there were a lot of bored uh, international uh, energy and climate experts sitting at home twiddling their thumbs because they couldn't go to work and they all had Zoom. And so I got I got interviews with, you know, the International Energy Agency and, uh, you know, experts at Oxford and in Asia and, and down in the U.S., and they were all happy because, you know, to have a chance to chat with somebody about anything, but particularly their, yep. their subject matter. So anyway, we started doing these Zoom interviews, and I've now done probably 1,500, 1,700. I mean, there's been a lot of them. And But I've made the point that half of them are outside of Canada. I wanted a global perspective. I wanted to know what people thought in the U.S., in Europe, in Asia Pacific. And what the perspective one gets from talking to you know four years of those conversations is that the energy transition and the electrification of everything the spread of all of these clean energy technologies is happening so much quicker than the way Canadians perceive it and the way Albertans perceive it including people who are running you know who are running these big uh, oil and gas companies and and so I've tried to bring the, bring those perspectives 
into our journalism so that they're available for those who, who, who want to listen. And, and, and I do it not just because I think that the CEOs are wrong. It's because once you have this different understanding of the energy transition, the dynamics of it, the, the timing of it, the likely timing of it, then you make different choices and you have different politics or you have different conversations around in the, in the political sphere. And I think that's so, so important is that we broaden our, our perspective and think outside of the Calgary bubble or the Alberta bubble or the, so anyway, your take I, on that. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm going to give you three, three very concrete and specific examples that illustrate exactly what uh, you're commenting on, which is fundamentally this, this sort of myopic insularity that we have in, you know, I call it T2P-itis. And T2P is the forward sortation area of downtown postal code, right? And it's this tendency to believe that the whole world is looking at us with a great deal of admiration. And man, if we could only do things like they do in downtown Calgary, all the world would be in order. But my three examples are this. So in our global business at Geologic called Evaluate Energy, we track uh, all of the energy and power deals all around the world. We have a big team in England. We got a big team in India to track this. And if you looked into five years of deal history among all the super majors in the world, right? The ENIs, the Petrobras, the big original seven sisters, you can see, holy smokes, it's very little oil and gas and it's all energy transition deal making, right? And it's phenomenal, right? And it makes you as a Canadian sort of understand how, how far back in the race we really are. Second, second example, the World Petroleum Congress is coming to Calgary this fall, and uh, I'm involved in, I'm co-chairing the Carbon Tech Expo conference within the conference about Canadian decarbonization. And, you know, I have had to, uh, with my colleagues on the planning committee, sort of say, guys, this tendency, you want to have to valorize everything we're doing with ShellQuest and that sort of thing. We, we, we have to look at the rest of the world and make this a listening tour as opposed to a telling tour when, when the world arrives in Calgary in, in, uh, in September. And the last thing is I was part of a government mission a few weeks ago to Poland and the Ukraine. And of course the Ukrainians came to us in Warsaw, but I was with 30 Alberta companies and you could tell um, by the end of them listening to the Poles and the Ukrainians Ukrainians for a country at war have a better and more comprehensive energy transition framework <laughs> than we do in Canada. How lamentable is that? And you could talk to Markham, you could interview these people that were, were on, on this tour and they were infrastructure builders, you know, pipeline companies, uh, there was ourselves at Geologic. And they thought to myself, holy smokes, you know, you're, you're, you're fighting the Russians over here and you're doing carbon sequestration over here. You're thinking about hydrogen in so many contexts. There's not enough colors in the spectrum to describe. Like it's it's it was a real eye opener for these companies on the trip, and even the bureaucrats from the Alberta government and the you know the trade commissioners, all great people. But all of a sudden, and and the whole point was this is what life in the EU is all about. And and the, you know Poland is obviously in the EU. The trigger for uh, Ukraine ascendancy and admission into the EU is getting ahead of the curve, and they're phenomenally advanced. And so, you know, we would sit and have beers at, at, at night in cafes in Warsaw, and I'd say, so what do you guys think? Now, I, I have the advantage of having a global business that pays attention to this stuff, and so I'm well aware of it. And but, you know, it's that old thing about the profit being a profit without honor, right? <laughs> and you need somebody else to show these folks on it. And they said, wow, we didn't know how far advanced. And I said, 
in energy transition, this is a trillion dollar sector for your companies, right? And it's not got the risks that everybody's talking about. And so I, you know, your, your point, you know, I'm living and breathing and that's the benefit of working in the industry is you get invited to these conversations and participating on missions and speaking on panels and that sort of thing. And it gives me a little pulpit to talk about this stuff, but often whenever I can sort of, here's the data and here's the facts of where we actually sit on that scale in the world. And so I always tell people, you know, that thing that cap used for many years, we've got the second biggest reserves in the world after Saudi, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, if you flip that on itself, 180 degrees, you know, in terms of advancing, in terms of getting this stuff right from a policy and a regulation framework and an environmental framework, we're at the other end of the scale. <laughs> so, yeah, it, anyway. it becomes a liability, not an asset. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I would agree. And, and, and one of the things I've noticed, and, and this really came home to me uh, in February when I was in Edmonton for a hydrogen conference, is the 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 narrative had changed the people that were at that uh they were not all oil and gas folks you know there was lots of municipal politicians there were lots of people in trucking and other related industries that and and some of them were the the companies that were making these these new you know hydrogen uh, either to supply hydrogen or to use hydrogen and and so but there's still there were you know there were there were the usual suspects uh who show up at these things but the, the tone had changed. And, you know, you had people like uh, Edmonton Mayor uh, Sohi talking about, you know, we want to be a world class in this low emission fuel. And we think that, you know, it's got all kinds of possibilities. And so we're moving aggressively. And, and the stuff that's being done around the industrial heartland and that hydrogen hub that they've got, uh, that initiative is, is, is world class. So I've interviewed Americans who are pursuing their own hydrogen hubs, and they're not nearly as advanced as they are in Edmonton. So it's not it's not a barren landscape. It's not as if nothing is happening in 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 Alberta. The question really is: Is Alberta well positioned and well prepared? If for the worst case, and I'm fond of saying that Alberta particularly the oil and gas, always plans for the best case and ignores the worst case when, you know, our mothers have told us, no, plan for the worst, hope for the best. So what I see now is them is change, but the worst case is peak oil demand before uh, 2030, uh, a, a short plateau, and then uh, demand destruction, structural change in, in, the, in the markets for, for oil that lead to volatility and lower prices. And, and once free cash flow dries up, once profits dry up or are reduced, then you have less money to work with to fix some of these problems. And that only gives us, you know, what, five, seven, maybe 10 years at the outset to, to fix these things. And it takes a lot of work to fix them. So I, I argue for we need, we need to understand the problem quicker. We need to have uh, an urgency to act quicker. And we need to get on and get it done. Well, I couldn't agree more. And that's extremely well said. And what you've articulated there is what I was trying to get at is in, in perhaps not as eloquent a way as you've just said it was the idea of how do you accelerate narratives that create a leadership momentum. So exactly as you've described that you've got companies like uh, 
Pat Carlson's Quintino deliberately seeking to euthanize itself over time, uh, you know, it, because and then all of a sudden people will say Quintino is not an oil and gas company. It's not an energy transition company. It's a decarbonization power generation company. And in point of fact, you know, it's integrating the solar, the wind, the geothermal dynamics. Another one, shameless plug for a little cool company called Puchera Energy, right? Geothermal producer that's actually co-generating with natural gas, but sequestering carbon in situ. So, you know, it's a bad geoscience metaphor, but reservoir engineers look for two things when they're subsurface. Porosity, where the values held in the pores, and you know this from your time in industry, and permeability, the ability to those cost-effectively get those pores talking to each other. Well, you know, everything you and I have described, there's working parts of those things in here, except we're not, we don't have the internal industry permeability to say, wow, non-combustible utility of the, you know, we, we're going to be living in an era, we're already living in an era of molecules and megawatts that need to be peaceful coexistence. And over time, we've got to figure out how those molecules are going to feed those megawatts without ignition. Bill, uh by the power invested in me as being the owner of this and the host of this podcast, I'm going to grant you the power uh, and the ability to make all the changes you need to make to change the narratives, which then hopefully will flow into changes in strategy and policy and all the other things we've, we've been talking about. So tell me how you would change things. So I'm going to put, you know, if I could imagine the great Canadian demographer, uh, Dr. Foote from the University of Toronto, who was famed for boom, bust, and echo. If he was on this call with us, just listening to you and I chat as two sort of boomers, uh, he would say, what don't you understand, Bill and Markham? I told you this back in the 90s, that you would be at this in inflection point in where your industry is going. He would then also say, what you guys need to understand, Bill and Markham, is you're working across three generations of of oil and gas employee, energy employee, energy citizen, and that you've got to figure out from a timing perspective when to strike hard with the most productive and constructive narrative in the context of fundamental demographic shifts. And I think the time, and I'm one of those late boomers, Markham, and I think the stale, pale, aging male, uh, Soros, you know, is, the, but from a narrative point of view, I would say this is, I don't want that dinosaur to go extinct without all of the great knowledge capital being drawn out of them into the current generation. And narratives do that, right? And because I can walk through the Petroleum Club at lunch and I can see all kinds of phenomenal individuals. I can know to a person what I would extract from their cerebral uh, cages and pass on to the next generation. And I can know what I would leave in those uh, cerebral cages, right? And that's where, so that's what I, you know, starting to start to work at is that transgenerational series of inflection points and how we roll the good knowledge capital forward, the innovation, the entrepreneurial spirit, all those things, and leave behind as vestiges of the past, the anger and the angst and, you know, and ask a new generation to sort of start creating its own, you know, I know that sounds very Don Quixote, like my donkey parking meter is just time about to run out over there. But, but that's where I, that's how I see it. And, I, you know, I deliberately take uh, once a week, I deliberately take a young leader to the petroleum club. 
And then I deliberately say to the young leader, let's go over and have coffee at the ampersand building where the energy transition center is. That's your world. How are you going to navigate it? Right. And so that's that's the work I'm going to continue to do. So. Well, good for you. That that's a that's a very interesting approach. I mean, it makes perfect sense. You want to get the emerging leaders who are going to influence. But do we do we have time for that? I, I, I do believe I do believe we have time. I, I, I concur. I think, you know, quite honestly, if the right policy and regulatory and innovation inflections come in and because my day job is really about ESG and sustainability and anybody who is ignoring those powerful forces of IFRS one and two is, you know, those things are working in the favor of the narrative that you and I agree upon. Um, and, you know, we're we're seeing a rapid acceleration of of these opportunities i think you know it's not even peak oil you know we're going to reach a point where we're going to say yeah consciously as a society and as an industry we're leaving that in the ground because we're making a pile of money over here doing these other things yeah that's that's the thing and and i think that uh well let me tell you a little anecdote so i interviewed uh, dr paulo bomben who is uh with the alberta innovates and he's one of the I think he's leading the the research uh, and the uh, uh, the, the uh, what do you call them the competitions that they do. You know, yep. uh, the word escapes me. But anyway, they have the competitions between teams of scientists and entrepreneurs yes. to come up with this uh, to develop processes to turn bitumen into pre-carbon uh, uh, precursor. Okay, so I'm, Dr. Bomben is is at the whiteboard, and he's talking about. Uh, why bitumen is such an extraordinary resource to be feedstock for advanced materials manufacturing. You know, and he's pointing out the what what a typical hydrocarbon molecule looks like. And then he said, but now look at look at let me draw the the, the bitumen molecule for you. It's not a it's a sheet. And it has all of these, it has wonderful, you know, carbons here, or, uh, sorry, carbon molecules here, carbon atoms here, and and hydrogen and oxygen atoms and all of the and it's it's custom made it's beautifully made to be manipulated with different if you can figure out the right you know chemistry processes it's 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 beautiful to be manipulated as so it becomes something you can you can make stuff out of and he said we're just figuring that out because not a lot of this work had been done prior to when we started five years ago so they made a a remarkable progress but the the point I'm, i'm getting at is that that bitumen is not is in the right context, used for the right purposes, is a fabulous resource. It's an amazing resource. It can produce so much value and wealth for Alberta, far beyond what is ever done as a, you know, and the current system where it's used as feedstock for, for refineries. Absolutely. And Look at anyway. uh, Paolo. Paolo is, he's, he heads the Bitumen Beyond Combustion Program at Alberta Innovates. Right. right. And if you think about bitumen, you know, people say, well, what does the bitumen molecule? Well, there's no such thing as a bitumen molecule. Bitumen is saturates and resins and aromatics and volatiles. And it's exactly like the sheet you've described. But if you look at Canadian bitumen, just to make your point in one specific example, the organic content of the asphaltines could pave and repave and repave every road in Canada without any combustion, simply because of that chemical magic. But if you talk to Alfred Fisher, uh, who's a longtime industry guy and who's been pushing the asphaltine stone up a hill, what his big issue is, is getting governments and industry to say, you know, 
there's more money in combusting it over here than in paving roads without combusting it over here. And I said to him, Albert, keep fighting the good, uh, good fight, you know, because you're, you're, you're absolutely right. We're going to the point where society won't tolerate uh, combustion in the way we've been doing it in the past as a notion writ largely. So you're, you're, you know, this is, you know, and then just graphene production, Markham, out of, yes. uh, you know, That's like, right. and the list goes on, right? <laughs> you know, um, and so you're absolutely right. And so how do you, how do you build that into something that gains political traction, regulatory traction, policy traction, and kudos to the Alberta government with Alberta Innovates, because Paulo and John Zhu and all the other team members involved in that, they're at the cusp of something, which gives me great heart that we'll be able to meet the timelines that you've spoken to earlier. Right. The one thing that uh, that Paulo and uh, Brian Bomba, uh, Bomben in his, uh, his, I think he's a boss, actually, uh, but anyway, another scientist, and the point that they make is that right now, Alberta is a world leader on the bitumen beyond combustion program. Uh, it's also, uh, while its lead isn't quite as big in the turning carbon captured CO2 into materials, you know, like they're, they're doing at the research center, um, it's, still, it's still right up there with, with the leaders. And the point that they made in my interview is that all of that can be lost if some one of the big players like the Saudis or the Americans happen to notice what the Alberta is doing and say, oh, you know what, let's throw a couple of billion dollars a year into that and see what we can do. And, and just like that, Alberta's lead can be erased. And I think uh, this is why there is urgency to act now is because those areas where we're leading, we may not be leading if we tarry. There's a there's well, a cost if we tarry. Extremely well expressed. And it goes to your point earlier is, and it's that ability, you know, the Brian Helfenbaums and the, the Paolo Baumbaums of the world, they know about this stuff because they're looking at competing jurisdictions. They're seeing, you know, what the Texans are doing, for example, uh, on CCS. And then the, the cry comes, oh, well, we don't have an IRA, you know. And no, it like the reality is we're we we're in danger of losing carefully built up leads that we've had simply because the world's moving faster than we are, right? Yes, and, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. And that's across many fronts. You know, the, I know this is about oil and gas, but I also work in the agri-food space. We're losing our edge in agri-food. Uh, you know, that may be a topic for another day, but uh, uh, we're losing our edge in the critical minerals space. Um, you know, in terms of battery metals and all the rare earth elements. And, and so this is, I guess, my frustration and spinning it back to the original narrative conversation. We spend so much time with our arm, long arms back slapping ourselves and say how good we are. Uh, you know, and meanwhile, you know, the finish line is way over there and everybody else has sprinting broken the, broken the ribbon. <laughs> well, Bill, you know what? Uh, this is probably a good uh, point at which to... Uh, uh, wrap draw a uh, wrap a bow around our conversation and i really appreciate the kind of conversation that you and i are having because it's one that i so seldom have uh with folks who are involved in the industry but but as i said earlier at the beginning of the the interview that we need to have far far more of and so maybe one of the things that we could do is have this conversation more often absolutely maybe, and maybe draw in some more folks who uh, you know with from within the industry within the uh, within Alberta who uh, are amenable 
to having this conversation and see where it goes, because certainly something has to happen. And uh, I'll, I'll close with a, a bit of a, because uh, you brought up critical minerals. I interviewed the head of uh, Bloomberg NEFs, uh, what do they call it? Uh, minerals and mining. Uh, he was the VP. And, and we were talking about uh, Alberta and building not only critical minerals extraction, but the processing and, and refining of the battery metals. That's the key. And he and I asked him, I said, well, could this be done in Alberta? And he says, of course, it can be done in Alberta. Canada has lots of expertise and experience in in both mining and on, on the refining and, and processing side. And I said, well, how long has Alberta got? It's got, what, seven years? No, surely it's got a decade. He said, you have two to five years. And the reason you only, and this was a year ago, so now it's got one to, one to four years. The reason he said that, he said, is other players, and he, he singled out uh, the one of the the taggers, you know, of Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia. He said, "Look at those those countries. They're hungry for development. They're hungry to raise their standard of living, create jobs, bring attract capital, and they've been aggressively pushing in this space for a while now because they saw what's coming. You know, Indonesia is using its nickel yeah. reserves as uh, as leverage to get into into uh, to attract battery plants. So they're those are your competitors, and they're hungrier than you are." And they're moving faster than you are. They're more aggressive. And if you seed them any more advantage, you're done. So that's why you have two to five years. And I, that kind of urgency is, I don't think, well understood. And maybe there's a way that conversations like this can help to breed urgency, help to spread urgency so that everybody gets, you know, better understands what's at stake. You know, that's extremely well put. And it's a great note to end on. And I would just sort of, point to one group that understands the urgency and, and it could be good fodder if you haven't talked to him already, but uh, the Avatar Innovations Program uh, that has taken 300 young leaders and pushing them through a decarbonization competition process faster than these young folks have ever been pushed before. And it's phenomenal to talk with them and it gives you hope, Markham, when you talk to them, I'm happy to put on my change from within t-shirt on and go out and talk to these young folks because that's part of the critical mass creation. So, Well, good stuff. Um, Bill, thank you very much for this. Uh, it's a long, been a long time coming. We probably should have had these conversations years ago, Absolutely. But, I'm, yeah. but I'm happy that we're having it today and hopefully we'll have more of them in the future. So thank you very much for this. Thank you, sir. Enjoy your weekend. Okay. Okay.